Hello, and thank you for joining us for this edition of Stratford Talks, our monthly podcast that takes you into global affairs. I'm Ben Sheen. And I'm Marla Moore. And we're your hosts for the show. There are two segments to our show today. First, Europe analyst Mark Fleming-Williams will be here to discuss the latest existential question about the future of the European Union. And then we'll chat with security expert Fred Burton about the anniversary of the Iran hostage crisis and the lasting ways in which the 1979 incident changed diplomatic security practices and procedures. Don't forget, if you have questions for Stratfor analysts or suggestions for future podcast topics, drop us a line at stratfor.com slash podcast slash feedback. Or connect with us on Facebook or Twitter with your comments. Our handle is at Stratfor. And with that, on with the show. We'll start today by looking forward to December, when the European Council will hold another scheduled meeting. They're expected to discuss, amongst other things, the UK's referendum on EU membership and the Five Presidents' report. That report, by the way, is a document that was produced in June that lays out a roadmap for future integration among EU members. Another hot topic. The council was actually supposed to discuss the five presidents' report back in September, but this was put on hold reportedly because two core EU states, France and Germany, apparently have such deep disagreements about their visions for Europe that a senior official said it would be dangerous to pursue a public discussion at that time. Mark Fleming-Williams is here now to explain a little bit more. Europe appears to be in something of a pickle at the moment. We've got the immigration crisis, the Greek crisis, the looming spectre of the European debt crisis, a north-south divide, political extremism on the rise, and constant bickering among the flagship countries. And in the midst of all this, you have Brussels trying to retain the core vision of the European Union. I mean, for now, I'm quite glad I live in America, but can it get any worse for Europe? Well, Ben, you describe it as as a pickle at the moment, um, but I would say it's actually been in a pickle for quite a while. Um, the story of Europe has has been integration um, ever since its kind of founding in in the in the years after the, in the decade after the Second World War, and it's been getting closer and closer together. Um, but I would say that the the foundations potentially of this latest pickle actually came about with the formation of the of the European Monetary Union and, and the, the start of the euro in, in two thousand, um, which saw. Eight years of uh, prosperity and, and, and good times, but uh, underneath that was forming uh, kind of debt issues and, 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 and problems, which have really come to the fore in the, in the in seven years since 2008. The things that you describe, I mean, the, the sovereign crises, the, the sovereign debt crises, the bickering, a lot of that can be traced back to this, this, this step that was taken um, to, uh, to, form, to form the Eurozone. And it is, it's not going away. I mean, the, these 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 situations are, are continuing to get worse. So um, yeah, I wouldn't I wouldn't say it's it's anything new. It's been it's been it's been the status quo for a little while now. You know, really, we're talking about going back to the reason for the European Union being formed in the first place, which was a, a peace and prosperity project, mm-hmm. uh, which worked wonderfully until there was not so much prosperity. And before that, there was not so much peace. So I wonder if you might be able to talk to us a bit about the shape of Europe and. Going back, you know, a good century or so when we had so much warfare and so much conflict uh, between the main powers and uh, how that gave rise to the concepts behind the European Union and, and then the monetary union as part of that. 
the idea behind Europe and the reason why it kind of came about in the first place was as an obvious result of World War II. Um, it was, uh, you know, Europe trying to pull itself together with America's help after World War II. Um, World War II was, came out of World War I, um, you know, the Treaty of Versailles in, in 1919 um, and the, uh, some would say unfair peace, but the unbalanced peace. And uh, it could be said that that World War One came out of the um, Franco-Prussian War of 1871, um, which itself was the unifier which formed Germany. The concert of Europe, which existed before 1871, before the unif- unification of Germany, was essentially this this post-Napoleon system of a balance of power between um, the five powers of Europe, um, which all had a reasonable balance between their, between themselves, a re- balance of strengths, um, and they all kind of agreed uh, not to, to break the peace. Um, and there were little dalliances with that. The Crimean War, of course, um, between France and Britain and, and Russia on the other side was, was something like that. But it was generally a balanced situation. But then the formation of Germany um, created a force which was much more powerful um, than uh, the other players on the continent, um, and it was also everyone else had their empire, and the Germans wanted to, to get their own, get their own as well. So it, basically, it was the formation of Germany which unsettled that that balance. And so, as a result, when we get to the end of World War Two, and we're trying to think how uh, Europe's leaders are trying to think how they can create a system which is going to recreate a new form of balance, then that is where the European Union kind of suggestion grows out of. It's it's the idea of tying France and Germany so close together. Germany wouldn't feel the need to, um, or, or, or the unbalance wouldn't show itself in Europe um, because everyone was all part of one brotherly harmony, beautiful um, project. And as we know, the, the French and the Germans do do get along very well. So one of the ironies is that, you know, the European Union in its role to sort of lock Germany into an economic alliance with its neighbours and, and make future war, you know, an untenable thing. We've seen Germany rise to become incredibly powerful within the Union itself. Abs- yeah, absolutely. So Germany um, obviously was divided after World War Two as well, um, and, and East Germany became um, part of, well, uh, under the sway of the Soviet Union. Uh, taking the story onwards to, to kind of 1990, area, then you get the the fall of the Soviet Union, you get East Germany um, coming out, and so potentially being formed, to, uh, attached, reattached to Western Germany, um, and Germany becoming one one country again. And at that stage, um, what we see is uh, a lot of the a lot of the more geopolitically minded leaders, um, Thatcher, particularly in Britain, um, were quite wary about this idea of forming a, a unified Germany for that very kind of German question um, idea, which I, I touched on earlier. And part of the deal um, which would allow this to happen, this 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 reunification at that stage, was that again you would get a ne- the next step in unity, which is which was the introduction of monetary union, which the French were very keen on as an idea. They'd they'd constantly been um, tying themselves currency-wise to the Germans, um, but then having to, because the Germans believed in having a strong currency, fiscal um, uh, stability and, and, and um, kind of austerity as a way of life uh, in, a, in, a, in an economic sense. Um, the French often found themselves in the preceding decades having to go cap in hand to the Germans and asking them to, asking the Germans to strengthen their currency against the franc because it was embarrassing for the French to, to weaken the franc against 
the against the the German the Deutschmark. So the French liked the idea of attaching themselves to the and and sharing that uh, the 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 benefits of all that German austerity and and German responsibility over over the years by by creating that monetary union and it was so there was it was the 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 monetary union was a was a french plan which um was in a way part of the quid pro quo of what the um germans had to sort of go along with in order to be allowed to 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 reunify and so we see the 90s of of the germans digesting east germany which was obviously much poorer at that stage than west germany having been behind the iron curtain um and then and then as you say from from the beginning of the of the of this of this century and and the beginning of from 2000 onwards then you've got a reunified germany which is also now got the merits and there are benefits let's not forget for germany in the eurozone um because uh it makes the german currency that much uh cheaper um and actually that germany which is such an export led economy really benefits from from having a weak currency because then um it's very easy to be more competitive than um in the in the in the global market. Well isn't it really rather ironic though that the place that we find ourselves today is France and Germany have had this dream together for quite some time. France came up with it, Germany liked it, but today what we're hearing is their visions are now so different that they're afraid to discuss them in public because it would be dangerous to the idea of the union. How did we get there? Yeah, it was that kind of point of no return aspect of 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 joining the currencies but without that fiscal union with uh, unwilling to give up the 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 tax and spend powers which basically created a situation where the periphery of Europe so let's not forget this isn't just Germany and France this is the north and the rest of Europe together and it allowed the periphery of Europe while Germany was enjoying that benefit of the of the of a cheaper currency the rest of Europe was enjoying German interest rates as well um because there was the feeling that or the the market impression that Germany was kind of underwriting countries like Greece and 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 Portugal and 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 these countries um which meant that they could borrow at these cheap rates um and so you ended up having this very deep um uh this this decade of of debt accumulation in the south and and um ultimately when the when the when the carousel stopped in 2008 then that all became very clear and 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 we were left with with a a very different europe when it comes to it this this monetary union aspect was the next step in in binding um but without the fiscal uh union it allowed these imbalances to 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 build up um from a german perspective what they would have liked was to be able to have a um fiscal union allowing them to perhaps be more regulatory on these peripheral economies to perhaps make them more like germany um and make them more um uh austere fiscally responsible whereas what these southern european countries would have preferred was to would to have would for a union to be a little bit more about sharing the wealth um and a little bit uh, so what the southern european uh, southern european states picture is a european union which is a little bit like what germany experienced when the west joined the east um a kind of uh allowing that wealth to flow from from the rich side to the poor side and 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 neutral and equalize the country uh, the the overall kind of country or the overall unit over time thus we have two very different ideas the german and the french let's say the french um although they are leaders of the periphery in this um 
in terms of what they'd like to see the European Union become. Um, and that's very divisive when it comes to actually um, taking things forward. And it is one of the curses of the European Union that actually even when you know most countries can agree on an end state, they can't all agree on how to get there. And again, just trying to get all the countries in the Union to agree on a single thing is virtually impossible, isn't it? It is. So what we've ended up with is the uh, the Greeks, for example, the Greeks are kind of the epicenter of this issue um, because they're so indebted. Um, they're such extreme versions of what we've seen in Portugal and, and, and Spain to a lesser extent that we have seen these repeated crises where the Greeks are looking for essentially help paying their debts, which to the Germans look like um, transferring money um, from Germany to, to Greece, which is which is very uncomfortable. And so you've ended up with a situation which which Germany would is finding itself dra- being dragged deeper into a transfer union it would like to avoid. Um, but then on the other side, we get uh, so in, in 2012, when this this debt crisis came to a head, then we get a, um, a kind of German led Repost and a German-led uh, solution to it, which is a much more fiscally responsible mechanism coming from uh, Brussels, and it's all about austerity, and we get that uh, being being kind of stamped down on, on on the rest of Europe, and a lot of that actually has led, and it was one of those um, crises that you mentioned in your in your introduction. Um, this has caused a lot of that nationalistic, more extreme uh, anti-austerity kind of politics coming out as well as, as this kind of public lashback against um, against this against this drive. So you've you've seen Germany trying to create a Europe in its own image and you've seen the, 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 the um, backlash against it. And so now we're in a situation where it, it's a potential, Uh, It's a potential uh, seesaw moment uh, where there are forces beginning to move against austerity um, and it could be it could start heading the other way. Well, it's been very interesting because since they postponed the five presidents report, uh, France and Germany have made sort of a big public show of how much we absolutely agree on everything and, you know, making joint addresses, um, you know, various meetings together. But at the end of the day, Really, the point of division between them has to do with national identity and vision and geography in a sense. I mean, geography, as we discuss it in in this context at Stratfor, is very much a um, a tremendous factor in capital formation. Can you speak to why why geography dictates that you have a rich north and a poor south and and that really is the crux of the issue? If you look at a map of Europe, um, then it's got some very distinctive features. On to the north, you have this long, straight plain um, stretching from France all the way across to Russia, essentially. And also in the north, you've got these river systems, essentially, which are a collection of, of thick, navigable rivers, um, which uh, go to the sea, obviously, uh, which um, are which are, are, are useful for transporting goods and for communication within the within within the north of Europe. Um, and then by contrast, if you look at the south of Europe, um, places like Spain, Italy, Greece, you see many more mountains, you see many fewer navigable rivers, you see much more rugged terrain. Um, and what that does is it creates uh, communication barriers between um, cultures, even even within, for example, the landmass of the peninsula. 
peninsula of, 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 of Spain and Portugal. And that creates a very divisive kind of tribal kind of uh, development of, of, of culture. And this is what we see um, is through the history, you tend to see uh, some of the richer states being in the north and, 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 the, and the poorer states being in the south. So this is one of those kind of geographical facts of Europe. It has been overcome um, when the global attention has moved, for example, to the New World. Spain's position to, uh, vis-a-vis the New World actually caused it to get rich for a while. Um, but actually, in terms of capital generation, um, it's, uh, it's, it's tends to be accumulating more in the north than the south. Right. If you can colonize a certain part of the world and extract the wealth from it, then, you know, that certainly worked to their advantage for a certain period of time. But Absolutely. intrinsically, they are sort of bound by their geography to farming or, you know, very little ability to export or manufacture. And let's not forget as well that Europe is still looking to expand. You know, you had this expansion into Central Europe and some of the former communist countries in 2004 and 2007. You had Bulgaria and Romania join the Union. And most recently in Ukraine, you know, the sort of a lot of that kerfuffle evolved from from talk of of moving to the West. Yeah, behind that was um, particularly from a Western perspective, Western European perspective. They have demographic issues. Um, they they tend to be quite aging. Um, they are to to some extent at the leading edge of um, kind of efficiencies, and um, they're they're not too far from America in terms of GDP per capita. So there's not that much clear growth to be had. Um, whereas the, the the vision behind expanding to the east was more towards trying to um, develop the uh, trying to basically attach themselves to, to the potential for growth from the east from from countries like Poland, which have grown extremely well since since 1991. So there is the the, the expansion eastwards was was potentially more to kind of harness themselves to a to a to a fast growing region. You talk a lot about the geography and you know the, the trade and the monetary union and everything, but actually another one of the key tenets of Europe is actually the movement of people. Uh, or should I say the free movement movement of people across, you know, Europe itself. And one of the interesting things we've seen from the immigration crisis is a real inability to kind of craft together a coherent asylum policy. And, you know, it it really sort of undermines the whole European ideal, doesn't it? Absolutely. I mean, from... This is really breaking it down to a very straightforward um, view of, of Europe because the, the problem with Europe, the problem with the European Union, which, which uh, we haven't touched on yet, which is the core issue, um, is in the geography. Um, and that is that we've had 2,000 years of many divisions within the continent. You've had 2,000 years of France uh, squabbling with Spain, Britain usually squabbling with France and um, you know and with Scotland when it was when it's separate. You've got a long, long history of um, development in a divided manner, and that and it's divided by the geography. We talked about domestically within Spain, but don't forget that between Spain and France, you've got the Pyrenees, which causes divisions, which forms those separate cultures. Between France and Italy, you've got the Alps. It's the, it's these it's this combination of capital generation, but also barriers, which creates this the, these issues. So when the wonderful idea to create the Euro- and it is a wonderful idea, don't get me wrong, um, to create the European Union is is brought about, then everyone agrees this is a this is a great idea. But when you get a an end of prosperity, which is what happened in two thousand and eight, um, and you start getting very high unemployment and and high debt and 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 um, you know economic issues, 
add that to things like immigrants arriving in your country and crossing borders and, and streaming through Austria to get to Germany and, and you know, gathering at, at Calais to try and cross to the UK, then that's when those historic tensions emerge and those historic identities and um, Germans start raising their enforcing borders with Austria saying this is not our problem we want to keep it out of Germany and in Austria and in Germany's defense Germany's um, been one of the best um, in terms of accepting immigrants it's just an example so it's this is this is it is is the the immigration crisis is uh, quite a useful way to it kind of exposes those those fractures and those differences which to use an example and you know Winston Churchill talked about a United States of Europe in in 1945 very much thinking of the United States of America at the time it's hard to imagine um in the same way Florida um enforcing its borders uh, because immigrants were were flowing into its neighbor saying this isn't our problem this is this is not a floridan problem it's 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 for florida it's very much part of the country um so this is this is immigration is the latest example as a result it is the latest eroding force uh, at these ties that that um were created to bind the european union together um since its beginning they are two separate problems, but they can't be separated from each other because Europe, contiguously, if you think about it in that way, the discussion is do we get closer together or do we move further apart? And getting closer together sounds great, except that nobody can actually agree on how to get that done. And if you actually start to move further apart, where does that process stop for the contiguous union? And that's one part of it. And the other part I think you're saying is that, uh, you know, you have the migration crisis is happening in tandem with this internal conversation. And the question of identity is not only what is the European identity or identities for the contiguous landmass, it is also how will the flow of migration change those identities and, and can we withstand that? Yeah, very much. We're at a stage now where the level of integration, um, the Eurozone monetary union without fiscal union has been shown to be um unworkable going forwards in its current um in its current uh makeup so the question is do we go forwards or do we go back because we can't stay where we are um and as you say the problem with going back is that once you start unraveling the ties that bind it builds the momentum towards uh, towards separating, basically, and yeah, that the, that road essentially leads to separate countries, and this is why um, throughout its history, they've been uh, the Europe's leaders have been very careful about taking any backward steps, and so that leads uh, that leaves um, pointing forwards um, and integrating further. So, following the latest iteration of the Greek crisis, which we saw for the first half of this year, and it was kind of solved in July. But it was solved in quite a harmful way, um, where France and Germany were clearly on opposite sides. France had to um, convince Germany to to, to kind of um, accept uh, Greece Greece's remaining in the eurozone, essentially. So there was it was quite divisive at that stage, and and it became clear um, that the next step was going to be discussing 
the future integration of Europe. But we saw this PR decision to, to, to kind of hold hands in France and Germany to pretend that everything is okay, just to, just to calm things down a little bit. Um, and we saw France and Germany, President Hollande and Chancellor Merkel making a speech in the European Parliament together for the first time since 1989 that a French and German leaders have done that. So these, these, these kind of um, PR touchy-feely things that they've been doing, um, but it was particularly interesting that uh that when the time came or was supposed to be coming to to discuss um as you mentioned discuss the 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 future of europe they decided actually we quite that sounds a little meaty uh, and we quite enjoy this this kind of pr fluff period at the moment and so it was delayed until december so basically it's going to have to come this conversation they're going to have to decide and germany wants the the problem is um when they have this decisive conversation the germans want to talk about fiscal regulation they want to talk about um you know creating new institutions to oversee the southern european countries in order to 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 keep them in check and make them more german um in the end um and uh the french ideally really want to talk about transfer union and how they can create more so the the discussion for example around banking union and and um and creating a, a general deposit insurance um meaning that eurozone banks would bail each other out when they get into trouble and to germans that sounds like creating the opportunity again for those those peripheral countries to borrow on the german on the german checkbook it's these deep differing visions um of what europe should be looking like um which cause so many problems which cause this delay in this in this subject but which are going to have to be faced particularly as as um uh as as ben mentioned in the introduction with the uk referendum coming up in the next couple of years because the uk referendum is all about getting a renegotiation first trying to change the shape sort out the shape of europe which is going to best suit the uk and then uh, let the public the british public decide whether they want to remain in under those terms or not so the uk is going to be asking these questions and um with the rest of europe very much wanting uk to remain um they're going to have to be dealing with the questions but potentially you touched on it earlier, but it does seem that one way or another, um, Germany really is the power at the heart of Europe. And whether there's agreement or disagreement with France, this is where the largesse is coming from that's holding that union together for the foreseeable future. And they're certainly not going to disunify themselves as going back to the concert of Europe state of being. So it does seem that the German question is going to be there one way or another um, for quite some time to come. Yeah, absolutely. I think um, Europe has historically tended to be worried about one of its uh, one of its countries at any stage. So um, back in the 16th century, it was the fear of the Habsburgs and the, the danger that they in Spain and Austria combined would kind of swamp the rest of Europe and take over the whole continent and this is where again those identities show themselves this this kind of British and French kind of individualism and and, and separatism uh, shows itself and, and resists and gathers together to resist so that was that was then and then you've got uh, Napoleon doing his thing in the in the beginning of the 19th century and 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 again all the powers get together to, to kind of get it under control and, and and ultimately defeat it at Waterloo and and then the unification of Germany in 1871 just creates this latest and uh, now everyone's 
been worried we're living in the german age in a way everyone's worried about what happens with germany and europe at the moment is the latest answer to that question um there you know th- th- it's a much less violent answer than the than the previous two but it is uh it is the answer to the question it's held up for um for 60 odd years but we're currently seeing those the, the t- those ties that 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 connect that answer together being eroded um coming under strain and it's an interesting moment in terms of Europe, the monetary union not working at the moment, um, and the question of and the need to either progress or retreat, and the deep difficulties in actually progressing at this stage, um, which the situation has the potential that there may be no option but to ultimately retreat. Um, so there are various crossroads in the history of, of Europe, and this could be um, one that we're, that we're approaching. Well, that's definitely something that we'll be keeping an eye on and, and talking about much, much more in the future. So, Mark, thank you very much for taking the time to be with us today. Thank you. Mark, thank you. The month of November this year marks the 36th anniversary of the Iran hostage crisis, the day when a group of Iranian students overran the U.S. Embassy in Tehran and took 52 Americans hostage. The diplomatic crisis that followed lasted 444 days, ending with the Algiers Accords signed just moments after President Ronald Reagan was sworn into office. The 1979 hostage crisis was a watershed moment for the U.S. intelligence community and for the field of diplomatic security. And Fred Burton, Stratfor's Vice President of Intelligence, joins us now to explain why. So Fred, you've got a lot of experience in this field, both as a practitioner, an advisor, and occasionally as an investigator when things go wrong. What was the state of diplomatic security prior to the Tehran incident in 1979? Ben, it was pretty poor. When you look at uh, just the manpower that uh, the State Department had in those days when they were known as the Office of Security, or SY, there was probably 300 agents worldwide, and they were more regionally based. However, we did have a regional security officer, an agent by the name of Al Golazinski, that was actually in Tehran and was there when uh, the embassy was overran, and he ended up being a hostage for that year. We have a generation of Americans now who are too young to remember 9-11, let alone anything that happened in 1979. And I wonder, especially for that part of our audience, if you could spend a few moments just describing how truly different the mindset was for Americans specifically who may have been living or working overseas or particularly in the Middle East back in that era. Well, the fascinating part with the benefit of looking back now in the rearview mirror is that uh, 79 was certainly a a watershed moment, not only for the Foreign Service, but it was one of these um, years where we also had the attack in Islamabad, Pakistan, which the uh, U.S. diplomatic mission was set on fire. And then the lead up to that, remember, uh, in the early 70s, we had a whole wave of Black September Palestinian attacks and the Munich massacre at the Olympics. Uh, And then we had uh, U.S. diplomats uh, killed in Khartoum. Uh, We had uh, the U.S. ambassador and an economics counselor kidnapped and assassinated in Beirut in 1976. So uh, the the Foreign Service was a very dangerous place to be like it is today uh, in the 1970s. 
you just didn't have it resonate inside of everybody's home and in our social media world as we do today, like we've seen as a result of Benghazi. So it would be fair to say that although the threat existed at that time, it wasn't felt in the deeply visceral way that perhaps Americans who see beheadings on videos and, and other things of this nature feel it in a personal sense today. It was it was known and felt within the intelligence community and diplomatic circles, but not down to the level of average Americans living and traveling. Correct. Uh, but when you look at uh, certain key events such as uh, – uh, the uh, U.S. Embassy seizure in Tehran, uh, that was nightly news every day. And it was in the Washington Post and the New York Times and the Los Angeles Times. And there was daily updates on that. You would have to uh, look hard inside of the Washington Post and the New York Times for two or three lines of, of other kinds of incidents that happened against not only American diplomats, but any other foreign diplomats around the world. And there was a general perception, I think, uh, having grown up in that time period, that uh, this is an acceptable risk. You know, we had come out of Vietnam, you had diplomats all over the world, uh, and that if you're in these places, bad things do happen. And uh, if something does go wrong in these places, uh, you might get two or three lines about it in, uh, in a major national newspaper. So it's one thing reading about it in the newspaper, but it's another thing entirely actually being there on the ground as well. There was this awareness of a deterioration situation in Iran off the back of the Iranian revolution from where the Shah really started to get challenged in October 1977 all the way through to his exile in January 1979. The situation was getting worse on the ground and actually some steps were taken such as thinning out the number of diplomatic staff. But still, it was recognized as being a secure location, American territory in another location, effectively. Spot on, Ben. Uh, also remember that this was also deemed to be a tremendous forecasting and intelligence failure by many, meaning uh, our inability to, to monitor the deteriorating situation with the tripwires uh, that, that really weren't in place in that time. Uh, and if you fast forward to Benghazi, uh, there's a big study as to what kind of tripwire should be in place so you know when you start to to pull back and you start to remove diplomats. Uh, but when you look at it from a, a sheer tactical perspective uh, with Tehran, uh, the things that came out of Tehran to me uh, really formulated my early career as an agent because uh, we started to focus on hostage debriefings, uh, emergency action plans, uh, setting up offices for contingency planning. But at the end of the day, uh, when the host government by Geneva Accord is responsible for the safety and welfare of all official Americans or any diplomat in that respective nation, it can be from any country, and that deteriorates much like we saw in Tehran or we saw in Benghazi, that's where um, – Countries uh, really need to assess and evaluate, uh, do we really need a footprint in these countries? So uh, in essence, uh, when you look at Tehran, uh, there are so many security variables that came, came out of that. And, and one of the basics ones uh, really uh, centered on uh, hostage rescue, uh, Delta, JSOC, uh, organizations coming in to try to uh, forcibly rescue uh, American diplomats or diplomats held uh, in a foreign country. 
And we all know what happened uh, with the uh, ill-fated rescue attempt, uh, which you know has been attributed to the the Carter legacy of uh, of failure with diplomacy and the Middle East and so forth. Uh, but uh, I, I know that just inside my old organization, that as a result of Tehran, steps were were made to create contingency plans and emergency action plans and. Uh, have better planning and con- con- contingencies uh, in the works in order to bring diplomats out uh, in hostile environments. Can you step us back through what those early days at the Office of Diplomatic Security actually were like for you? Because you were in the early 80s. This was a very recent memory um, in the big scheme of things. And it was visceral for, I think, almost anyone who was involved in the intelligence community or in diplomatic security. What were the first points of uh, professionalism that you were taught as a result of the Iran hostage crisis? Well, I vividly recall the uh, case files of uh, Tehran uh, in our safe and on my desk, and I was tasked by my boss to study those and to look at those debriefing reports. And there were so many lessons learned uh, in in that event that uh, we as an organization, the Office of Security and the State Department, were were ill-prepared for. And and some of the steps that we we saw come directly out of that was – uh, emergency action plans, meaning what do you do when things go south and you're in a country where you can't depend upon uh, the local nationals to help protect your diplomatic facility and it's just you, maybe by yourself, one single agent and a Marine Security Guard detachment, uh, what are you going to do? And you're fostering liaisons with other friendly nations such as the Brits and the Canadians and the Aussies and trying to work collectively to evaluate certain situations. You're trying to stay on top of the threat. You're working hand-in-glove with the CIA uh, to try to develop tactical intelligence. Uh, You're trying to figure out how you can get your people out of country, for example, either by air or over land or even by sea. So um, Tehran uh, spun off a half a dozen different offices inside of Foggy Bottom alone focusing solely on crisis management and emergency action plans. And then another important variable that we learned was the criticality of exercises, meaning let's uh, put together scenarios where you have similar events take place and and game board them with actual uh, senior officials playing certain roles and uh, inserts or injects coming with, uh, okay, you've lost the embassy or terrorists are claiming that they've, they're holding the U.S. ambassador hostage. What do you do next? And you try to look at the effectiveness of your response capability. But I can tell you this, uh, the one big thing that came out of Tehran that I've also vividly recall, much like we saw in Benghazi too, many years later, was that at times uh, your help uh, is an aircraft carrier away. And it's a big world, and you've got a lot of diplomats and a lot of strange places around the globe. And uh, trying to get American help, even with our power and how we project power, is very difficult to do. So maybe in some cases it's best to look towards our allies, such as the Brits or the Canadians or the Aussies, to say, we need help here, and we need to roll the cavalry. It's interesting because one of the takeaways from Benghazi was actually having a mobile marine contingent 
positioned to respond to a number of different locations in the region and a number of eventualities. That was one of the things you mentioned earlier about Operation Eagle Claw, which was the hostage rescue mission that was sent out to retrieve the hostages. It showed the complexity of actually getting a force overseas to a staging area from which they could conduct the operation and then recover. It was a hugely complex operation and it didn't quite come off, but it did reveal a lot of planning factors that were carried forward into the 80s, 90s and to the current day. Without a doubt, Ben, and and you know the importance of coordination in the special forces community and uh, uh, trying to engage with that, which is another takeaway from this that you could do a PhD thesis on uh, studying uh, what went wrong just from the military rescue aspect, uh, not to mention um, what went wrong in Tehran, which certainly you know has spun off movies and books like Argo to describe uh, you know the ordeal that the Americans went through. And the other fascinating thing to me on a, on a personal level is uh, I've got to know one of the hostages quite well, and uh, he certainly helped me in my Benghazi book as well. And we were chatting about this this week. And, uh, you know, this was a long time ago, but it's still very fresh in, in all these victims' minds. And and I hearken back to my days of doing hostage debriefings of all the hostages held in Lebanon in that time. And I think that when you go through an event like this, this is the kind of thing that, that much like the POWs at the Hanoi Hilton, uh, these are the kinds of things that are with you forever. You may not ever be able to get a, get over them. There was a lot of psychological torment undergone by the people held within the embassy itself. It was 444 days and they were subjected to all sorts of terrible things. Mock executions, people were threatened with having their feet cooked in burning oil, there was physical abuse, there was a lot of torment. People actually tried to kill themselves in the embassy and they carried those traumatic experiences forward to the current day. I can vividly recall those days as a... As a a teenager um, thinking of, my goodness, why can't somebody do something? And then put yourself in that hostage uh, shoes, and here you are halfway around the world. You know, our government has sent you to to carry out your uh, your job in a diplomatic capacity. You're an accredited diplomat. This is the last thing you're ever thinking is going to happen when you're in one of these places, but then it does. And on any given day, these folks could have been killed, uh, things could have gone very badly if if uh, Eagle Claw had been successful. You, you don't know the outcome there. So uh, to me, when you look back on Tehran, embassy security has come a long way, predominantly even with Benghazi. And we all know there's enough fault in Benghazi. We could, we could spend another two or three hours talking about that alone. But uh, if you look at Tehran, 79 in Tehran – Kind of changed the whole influx of of new hires, and then and then uh, of course in the uh, early '80s when we had the horrific embassy bombings in Beirut, that's when guys and gals like me were hired because uh, the threat really started to uh, tempo up to the point that uh, Americans were being targeted literally all over the globe with not only hostage takings but aircraft hijackings and kidnappings of all sorts and and so forth. I'd like to ask you a couple of different questions because it's fascinating to me when you talk about the string of threats that existed for diplomats around the world prior 
to the Iran hostage crisis and prior to the Islamabad embassy burning in that same year. What were the root cause analyses and the after action uh, reports like for the intelligence community? Because there had to be lessons learned from that. There really were, but I can tell you that they consisted mostly in old brown accordion folders in our office with maybe uh, uh, news clippings and Fibus and Reuters and BBC uh, uh, news reports of what transpired. And you were lucky to have a cable or a telegram that described the event. Uh, and maybe you had a witness statement there. Remember, uh, until 1984, it wasn't a crime to kill uh, an American overseas, for example. So there wasn't really a lot of official investigations at times. So uh, SY, the predecessor of Diplomatic Security Service, uh, would dispatch a regional security officer to try to look into things and, and try to put the genie back in the bottle. But in many cases, what had happened uh, at that point is you either had already a dead diplomat and so you were focusing on physical security to try to keep the next diplomat alive. So there wasn't a lot of uh, after-action reports into what actually transpired, meaning when I first looked at uh, the 1979 file in Tehran, you start looking, well, we had an embassy burn and ransacked in 79 as well. Then you start looking and say, oh, my goodness, well, in, uh, in Beirut in 76, you had an ambassador and an economics officer uh, kidnapped and murdered. Uh, then you start looking and then you had uh, an ambassador uh, and another American murdered in Khartoum. And then you start looking back and you see all these other cases predominantly in Central and Latin America involving similar kind of attacks. And you're thinking, my goodness, uh, how long has this been going on and why isn't somebody doing anything about it? And uh, But you think about it in concept too that if you only had 250 or 300 agents – uh, in the field, and a lot of those folks were at headquarters, what could you really do? You were lucky to send one agent uh, that would be assigned, for example, out of Panama, and his job, and they were mostly men in those days, their job was to regionally stay on top of all these issues. So they were just like uh, smoke jumpers or firemen. They were responding to threat, to threat, to threat. And you had guys like Jack Hurst that was deemed to be a uh, troubleshooter. And his job was just to go put out fires. And when he wasn't doing that, he was conducting investigations for DEA and the FBI. So you had folks just multitasking all over the place. And then you had other foreign uh, diplomatic missions uh, that had very limited, if any, security personnel at all. Uh, so it wasn't unusual for some uh, foreign diplomatic missions in the 70s to not have any security personnel. They may have a military attache assigned. Seeing how these threats do proliferate, and we are actually seeing new threats emerge, and the fact the world is no less dangerous now, if anything, it's more dangerous, what can be done to really secure embassies and personnel overseas? Well, first and foremost, it takes uh, uh, a robust host nation uh, responsibility to take ownership of the protection of those diplomats, regardless of what nation states they're from. Uh, and uh, for the most part, governments get that right. Uh, we do a wonderful job here in the United States protecting uh, resident foreign officials, uh, internationally protected persons, they're called, diplomats to, to, to the layman. For the most part, governments do do it right. It's only in places that are deteriorating where you have problems, such as Benghazi, or look what we're faced with in 
Afghanistan or Iraq, or uh, now we're looking at an expeditionary kind of posting in Mogadishu. So when you look at these volatile areas, those are the places where things usually go go south. Uh, but now you have a, a tremendous uh, amount of intelligence community assets monitoring the day-to-day threat. You got the you got the national security apparatus collecting intelligence. You got SIGINT, ELINT, HUMINT. Uh, it, it's a priority to look out for threats against American diplomats and and other diplomats. Because if we do pick up chatter of threats against other foreign diplomats, we do uh, very quickly pass that along through uh, liaison channels. But you know, at the end of the day, you can only do so much. But I think that uh, the protection of American diplomats today uh, has never been better uh, when it pertains to uh, our current state of affairs. Uh, I think Benghazi changed uh, not only the way diplomatic security service protects diplomats in areas, but it also exposes weaknesses that help other nation states protect their diplomats. For example, we were never trained to protect diplomats when buildings were set on fire. You never expect that to happen. Well, maybe we should have because in 79 they set the U.S. Embassy in Islamabad on fire, but we just weren't trained to do that. So uh, other nations learn – uh, as well from the the lessons that uh, that we have, and we readily share that with uh, friendly nation states. When I think about the years of warfare from World War II through Vietnam, war is a major undertaking, and we go into war as a country reluctantly and not altogether frequently. The kinds of learning curves, um, as you know, we're now 14 years into Afghanistan, there's a different thought process, I think, in the American mind about warfare and what it actually means because it's an everyday process. Uh, the kinds of lessons that you learn and the, and the after-action sorts of critiques when you have a major intelligence failure such as Tehran or Islamabad or Benghazi, I think evolve more rapidly today because of the kind of world that we live in, whereas back then in the 70s when the threats were known but they were isolated, they didn't bubble down to the American mainstream. You didn't have Americans thinking or walking around in fear or have massive or congressional hearings <laughs> or congressional hearings um, based on those things. We, we seem to be more rapidly assessing the failures and course correcting now because of the tempo of operations, whereas in the 70s, it was known, but it was more rare. Is that your feeling? It is. I I think, first off, tragedy forces change. And uh, usually it takes uh, horrific tragedy to force bureaucratic change, like we saw in Benghazi. Or you can go back to the Munich Olympics in 72 with the uh, Israeli athletes that were held hostage by Black September. Then the entire special event management and the protection of athletes changes. Uh, And that's just what governments do. For the most part, I'm sad to say, governments are reactive. And they only change when they're forced to, or the American public or the the public at large or uh, Congress forces change. Uh, And that's just the nature of the beast. But... uh, I think that uh, the security process and procedures do adapt, and in today's environment, Marla, they adapt very quickly, you know, such as Benghazi. Well, let's train all the agents now to protect diplomats when buildings are set on fire. You know, that makes sense. Uh, You would think that it probably would have made sense for us all to be trained after 79, but there you have it. 
You've touched on a couple of different ways that uh, the Iran crisis was a watershed moment, and there are a couple of more that come to mind as, as we think and talk about this. And one of them is uh, the state of counter-surveillance as a, as a protective measure, you said, didn't really exist back then. Can you talk to me a little bit about, number one, perimeter security? Um, what was that like, and how did it fail into Iran? And then the second part is, when you think about the actual intelligence assets, um, how do you get rid of sensitive material if you're being uh, breached? Well, uh, your last question first. Uh, today, uh, there's a very sophisticated process that uh, diplomats and, and diplomatic security ser- service pr- agents and marine security guards practice on the rapid destruction of classified information so we don't have another Tehran where you have folks uh, piecing together uh, strips of uh, classified data. There's cross-cut shredders. There's rapid deconstruction of materials and so forth. Uh, On your question, and that's also practiced, and the technology also today gives you a better opportunity to to destroy things quickly. Uh, Also, to your first question on counter-surveillance, well, it didn't exist uh, until the the mid to late 1980s because I was part of the uh, original uh, group that started looking at the effectiveness of counter-surveillance, literally having assets on the perimeter look for uh, pre-operational surveillance before attack variables can start to unfold. Uh, in those days, back in 79, there was no such thing. So uh, the innovation just wasn't there. So in essence, what you have is that nation state responsible for the perimeter security, and if they lose control of that nation state like we saw in 79 or like we saw in Benghazi, uh, where the guards may also become the enemy at times, then you really do have a problem. And then you're left with nothing but uh, the ability to retreat to a safe haven uh, and uh, hunker down and wait for help kind of mindset while you're simultaneously making notifications and destroying classified material uh, to include communications material so they don't fall in the hands of uh, that nation state or the terrorist. And another thing to consider is that back then there was a huge amount of material, actual physical material to destroy. You had papers, files, things you had to either burn or shred. And it was almost impossible to actually destroy the volume of material that was required in the time frame. Whereas now, so much of what we do is actually it's digital, be it, be it files, audio files, encrypted data. You know, it's in a digital format. It's stored in a retrieval system, which makes it a lot easier to to wipe or actually destroy or at least make sure that somebody can't get their hands on it. Whereas back then, it was a lot more difficult. So you touched on cybersecurity as an aspect of espionage. And, and in essence, we're talking about asymmetrical threats, and that is the shape of the threat today as we know it. How else has uh, the intelligence community's thinking about asymmetric threats changed since since 1979. And in your mindset, is there anything that hasn't changed enough? Well, I think there's some bureaucratic changes inside the State Department that haven't been effective enough, meaning uh, if you still look at a flowchart of the State Department, you'll see the Diplomatic Security Service is is still buried underneath uh, the management chain inside of Foggy Bottom. And until, in my assessment, uh, the Diplomatic Security Service is elevated, to an undersecretary position where they can 
directly interface with the Secretary of State and say, you know, at times this isn't a good idea, or maybe we shouldn't be in places like Benghazi or Mogadishu. And uh, perhaps uh, whoever's thinking about that should uh, go watch Black Hawk Down. Uh, so I think at times you need uh, folks that can can look at the decision maker eye to eye and 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 say, look, from a security perspective, this isn't good to do. Uh, historically, uh, the State Department's uh, security team has always gone wherever the mission is, and at times um, that's been in very volatile areas. Uh, so. Uh, in essence, uh, from a bureaucratic perspective, there's a lot of change that needs to take place there. Having said that, from the intelligence community perspective, uh, today at the embassies, you know, back in 79, uh, you had a single State Department agent in Tehran, period. That's one guy uh, doing the best he can, and he was in his 20s, if memory serves me right. So think about that from a responsibility perspective. Then uh, today, at a similar-sized embassy overseas, you're going to have a huge operation with a senior regional security officer and a deputy, and you're going to have a, an agent in charge of the ambassador's protection with an entire bodyguard program on the U.S. ambassador and any other diplomat that may be venturing out into areas that may be dangerous. You also had an embassy. You have a, a very robust defense uh, program with uh, Marine security guards. You have uh, defense attaches. At times, you have FBI legal attaches, Secret Service agents, DEA agents, DHS agents, uh, IRS agents, even at some of the bigger uh, embassies. So uh, all the cops are able to get in one room and sit down and talk to the CIA, for example, and say, "Okay, this is what we're going to do about this problem." So uh, it's just miles ahead when you start looking at that just from an intelligence interface perspective. Uh, and then you have the ability to reach back to Washington to say, look, uh, what do you folks think about this? This is what we're seeing or this is what we're hearing. So uh, the problem with that, though, is, again, much like we see here at Stratfor at times, is there's so much information. How do you make sense of the white noise? And how do you... Uh, uh, get down to that tactical analysis that is actually going to keep keep people alive. Well, Fred, there's always so much to be learned from these historical incidents. They really do continue to inform the way we think and and operate in security circles today. So thank you for this fascinating discussion. And that's our show for today. Once again, if you have any questions or comments to share, please drop us a line at stratford.com slash podcast slash feedback. Be sure to give us your full name and an idea of how to pronounce it, as well as the city and the country you're writing from. In the meantime, if you'd like to stay up on any of the topics we discussed today, be sure to visit stratfor.com for the latest insights and analysis. Thanks again for joining us. Until next time.